0: This is not the media. This is hell.
1: I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth Radio Show live stream and podcast host, Chuck Mertz producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, I saw something right as I was approaching the office today that made me smile, but I was also having an internal struggle with. I saw something happening downstairs. That has not happened in three months, three and a half months, that I could not believe. Something happening at the bar downstairs. Can you guess what I saw? It was... A rat head? A beer delivery.
0: Okay, I saw an organ uh, down there recently from some unknown rat. Uh,
1: This was a beer delivery and had nothing to do with rats. (laughs) Um, and I was really kind of torn about it I saw the beer delivery driver who I know I immediately went to go shake his hands And I shake his hand for delivering beer And I didn't have gloves on today I was out of gloves, so I'm going to get some today uh, And I immediately wanted to go shake his hand Fist bumped, realized I shouldn't have done that Had to come up here and wash my hands for 25 seconds Like it was the beginning of the pandemic Or like it, you should do every day anyway But I was really torn because I was like, this is really great, you know, some kind of going back to normal. Even though I know that there is no normal and we shouldn't be going back to that normal. And I I just had all these conflicting thoughts because even when the bar reopens, I'm not going down to the bar. I'm very afraid of crowds still. I'm very much wearing a mask until Labor Day of 2021. So I don't know. I'm really torn. I was very happy to see the beer delivery actually happening. But at the same time. I don't
0: know. Yeah, things must be getting back to normal. Yesterday, I was thinking about the imminent death of my family, and then I got uh, interrupted by the beautiful smell of peonies in my next-door neighbor's yard, so I uh, guess we're all moving on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's, not, that's a very disturbing and odd way to look at it, but it sounded very much like a David oh, you, Lynch you, film. You, you don't like peonies? <laughs> no, not really. Today on the you know, Daisies, Can't Stand the Smell of Daisies, don't know what the deal is. Today on This Is how, by all mainstream metrics, the U.S. economy was doing very well as 2020 started. It was doing so well that President Trump had already started campaigning on those good economic numbers, believing it would carry him to a second term in office. But capitalism had already been showing its cracks as it was throwing more and more lives into precarity. With its inequality and disparity, the cracks kept growing in number with inequality and disparity and what little was left of the social contract. After it had been torn asunder by the market It seemed like one little push One small tap And the whole thing would shatter to pieces And that's exactly what happened The weaknesses, vulnerability, and lack of sustainability Of capitalism came to the fore When the coronavirus made landfall In the U.S. with the U.S. facing a global Pandemic set to kill in the hundreds Of thousands here in the States With an economy unprepared for those kinds Of challenges suddenly collapsing Suddenly Suddenly Then, at that moment, we have the police killing of George Floyd, and we are also in an era of mass revolt. So what happens when economic collapse, global pandemic, and mass uprising all happen at once? Well, nobody's quite sure yet, but we'll consider what the confluence of those three factors could mean when we speak in a few to Richard Hunsinger and Nathan Eisenberg, who co-wrote the Cosmonaut article mask off crisis and struggle in the pandemic richard was on back in august of last year to talk about another cosmonaut article holocaust capitalism i'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show podcast live stream host chuck mertz as I said, producing is Alex Jerry. This week's question from Hell is: What are you bringing to the autonomous zone? What are you bringing to the autonomous zone? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins a This Is Hell medical face mask. You can check out the This Is Hell face mask right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can help out. Completely, Listener supported This Is Hell. Without you, we are nothing. We got nothing. So, thanks to all of you for your continued support. You can leave your answer to this week's Question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebookcom hell Radio. You can tweet it to us on Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. You can email it to either of us, Chuck at This Is Hell.com, Alex at This Is Hell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner tomorrow after Jeff Dorchin delivers the moment of truth. Alex, how have listeners been answering the Question from Hell since we last spoke?
0: So this question from hell is, what are you bringing to the Autonomous Zone? What are you bringing to the Autonomous Zone? And somebody's already mentioned an AutoZone joke, so uh, we're <laughs> done. With that. We've hit the quota for that. Ed F says, more chaos. John H says, a sniper rifle for zombie control. Shane J says, armed guards and a decree declaring Senor Juan Gerardo Guaido Marquez the interim president. <laughs> nice. Might as well try somewhere else. Sure. Uh, Krimsky K says, a sign saying, here be dragons. Dave Z says, copies of Hayek's The Road to Serfdom. Adio says, my erogenous zone. (laughs) Greg uh, Greg M says, the growing optimism that the younger generation may just get it right this time as evidenced by no one so far saying, (laughs) these nuts. Except you, Greg. (laughs) Damn it. Uh, Tom W says, horse crap. Making our community garden in Moera, uh, New Zealand grow awesome this winter. Solidarity with y'all from New Zealand. And then posts a link to a uh, New Zealand article on Black Lives Matter. Oh, there you go. Uh, finally, uh, a couple more. Kim G says, the antibodies. <laughs> uh, Luke H says, preconceived notions. <laughs> finally, Scott W says, coloring books, crayons, markers, balloons, and a flamethrower.
1: Again, this week's question mail is, what are you bringing to the Autonomous Zone? Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question mail. Following our guest, email us your answer to com or com. Post them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or DM them to us via Twitter. We're going to be announcing this week's winner at the end of show tomorrow, Thursday, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. So get your answers in now. During tomorrow's Moment of Truth, Jeff explores little nightmares. Just tiny little nightmares. Live from Hangover Country, this is Hell. And man, do I have a media hangover I've been watching way too much corporate news And as listeners, Zach pointed out in an email last week I really gotta cut down, if not stop altogether But I do it for you, I keep telling myself And to be honest, I'm getting pretty angry with you For doing this to me Can't you watch this crap yourself so you know how bad it is And I don't have to mention it ever again I mean, we know it sucks, so honestly, why do I waste my time? Look, Noam Chomsky said once Okay, knowing Noam He probably said it 7 million times That the more news you watch The less you know I get what he meant The more of that information you get from corporate news in your head The more your thoughts are distracted by What is often unnewsworthy information Distractions from what is actually happening In the real world Like CBS Evening News Ending every broadcast since the pandemic Officially started here in the U.S. in mid-March And every... Broadcast with a feel-good story. At the beginning, the point was to, the beginning of the pandemic, CBS's point was to make certain we all understood we are in this together. We're all in this together. But after disparities in deaths caused by the virus based on age, race, class, and all the disparity and inequality within each, as well as a number of other differentiating factors, it became increasingly obvious that, no, we are definitely not all in this together. Some even walled themselves off in their gated communities with their private doctors and their concierge medical care. For others, those gated communities were not far enough away from the infected mobs, so they cruised offshore on their yachts, eventually moored like islands of exorbitant wealth, safe from the virus-addled rabble. CBS Evening News is so, so freaking weird. Anchor Nora O'Donnell teases the top stories by starting... She, like, presents a face that reveals a... A somber, foreboding look, warning us of the problematic stories ahead. As she continues the tease and gets deeper into the stories, her face slowly transforms into a half-smile that eventually bursts across her face by the time she teases the final feel-good story that ends each show. It's as if Nora is telling us, Warning, the news may begin with death, but no worries. By the end, I promise, you and I will feel good about everything that's happening. Like the feel-good story, it erases all of the horrors of the day with one quick swipe so you can go on with your life and forget about all the ugliness, or at least it's so far away that you can still feel good and guilt-free. For instance, Monday, while ABC World News Tonight and NBC Nightly News thought it was necessary for some reason to show Richard Brooks' murder in the parking lot of a Wendy's in Atlanta four consecutive times, I felt like I was Alex the Droog in Clockwork Orange and being forced to watch some sort of murder porn. Because really, watching a murder three times in a row, that has no impact on the human spirit or soul. But that fourth time, that's the clincher where the heart and mind finally find sympathy for the victim. Before that, they have no respect for that dead person's humanity at all. But CBS, in their run-up to their happy, happy ending, they have every night they figured their audience really needed to see it not four but five consecutive times for the evil that is taking a human life to really sink in with their viewing audience i guess the viewers of cbs evening news are simply more heartless so cbs knows they have to show a murder five times because of their viewers you don't get any sympathy by watching a person being killed only four times starting to think CBS believes their viewers are so heartless they need to show them murder more for its evil to sink in and then they need to end the show with a defibrillator of happiness to make any connection with the soulless monster demographic their advertising department is targeting. What the hell is going on at CBS? I don't know. But corporate TV news media across the spectrum is pushing a narrative slowly on police violence and it's becoming so pervasive that it may derail any real hope at addressing the myriad problems we have with our police state here in the U.S., like the massive surveillance system that was supposedly built by Homeland Security to stop foreign terrorists, but immediately upon implementation was, instead of pointing at the threat of incoming terrorists or sleeper cells, turned on U.S. citizens in a class war launched by police to manage and control the poor. That narrative that makes even the likes of Joe Biden and commentators on Fox News comfortable is the use of the word systemic to describe racism in police departments across the United States. It sounds good. It sounds enlightened. It sounds progressive. But systemic obfuscates any personal responsibility by cops. It actually protects the bad apples that conservatives insist is the real problem with policing. Systemic means relating to a system, especially as opposed to a particular part. It's not that particular police officer's fault that he shot that unarmed person running away from them in the back and killed them. It's the systems, his trainings problem. That was the real problem, therefore holding the deadly cop responsible for murder is not justice as he was just doing as he had been sadistically trained within a system. Also, don't hold the trainers or the authors of the training manual responsibly because, again, they are all victims of a system that is beyond their control. Systemic racism is not the problem with policing, nor was it a phrase that activists organizing against police violence have used since John Brown, and that's institutional racism. This isn't a mere system that pervades everything through a culture of racism that is pernicious, slowly becoming normalized in some passive manner. Racism in the police is beyond that. It's enforced by a set of rules like any institution. An institution is an important part, the bedrock of any project, and institutional racism is the bedrock, the foundation of policing. An institution is the home of knowledge about that endeavor. It is an established organization of a public character, and the police displayed that public character of a willingness to beat and even kill citizens daily, Citizens who they say they serve and protect Although the only people I can see being served or protected by some ass-kicking cops Are those whose unfair and unequal privilege can only be enforced with violence An institution is about instituting an establishment And the establishment the police are enforcing with violence is one of control Control over the low-wage labor that is necessary to continue fueling the vast wealth of the elites Whose interests are served and protected By their police This is not mere systemic Violence that is out of the control of any Individual officer, this is Institutionalized violence that is enforced Upon all of us by the ruling class So they can get their dirty money by getting Dirty cops to do their dirty work of subjugating The poor for profit The problem with police Is institutional, it's not Systemic, it's a foundation Of what the police are It's not simply poor training It's the idea that in what is supposed to be a democracy the state needs armed muscle patrolling the streets to enforce democracy that's democracy and when they're not intimidating the hell out of everybody by carrying weapons of death on them at all times wherever they go they're kicking civilian ass which doesn't sound like democracy at all what that sounds like is this is hell. Coming up on This is Hell. So what happens after an economy collapses, a virus goes pandemic and the world goes into revolt? More of your answers to this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry, live from the United States where property has more rights than people, which I think I wrote that about two years ago, and apparently that is becoming incredibly true With the uprising today, this is how the emperor has been revealed to have no clothes yet again. And this time the ruler is not some Magyar jawed monarch, but capitalism whose cracks have been made into chasms in light of the global pandemic and now uprisings against police violence. Here to help us understand what this point in history might mean for our future. Richard Hunsinger and Nathan Eisenberg co wrote the cosmonaut article, Mask Off Crisis and Struggle in the Pandemic. Richard is a writer and member of Atlanta's Housing Justice Guild, and he writes at the blog Material Community Industrial Polity. Welcome back to This Is How, Richard.
2: Hi, thanks. Uh, Glad to be back.
1: And Nathaniel is a writer based in the East Bay area. He also writes at Material Community Industrial Polity. And you can follow him on Twitter at Post Cyborg. Welcome to This Is Hell, Nathaniel.
3: Uh, Thank you. Yeah, I love being
1: here. Thank you for being on our show. This is a really fascinating article. You start off by writing that this pandemic is unmasking the real imminent content of capitalist society in all its uncaring austerity and banal Cruelty. The simple fact now visible to anyone forced to work without PPE or handing over rent payments from dwindling savings with no horizon of replenishment is that capitalist social relations cannot sustain human life, that their own perpetuation requires our mass endangerment. As we have had Richard on the show in the past, Nathaniel. Let's start with you. This is a reality, as you say, now visible to anyone forced to work without PPE. How visible is it to the rest of society? Where have you seen cracks, any cracks in the denialism around capitalism's inability to sustain life in this moment? Um,
3: Well, I'm involved in some tenant organizing and uh, the tenant union that that I work with quadrupled its membership in uh, the month of Mar- in March and April because so many people who, and I've talked to like a lot of different people, some of whom are pretty politicized, you know, on the left, it's on somewhere on the spectrum. Um, but a number of them are, that are people I talked to are um, not necessarily super politicized or they're new to it or they it's mostly been theoretical to them and they haven't really done any kind of uh, real organizing. So a lot of people are kind of for the first time coming to the conclusion, which I think, and very quickly, like immediately, that um, the absurdity that they live paycheck to paycheck and as soon as that lifeline is cut, um, they're not given anything else, but they're still expected to pay rent. And... Um, a lot of people have come to hate landlords in the last few months.
1: Richard, why to you? What explains that fragility of capitalism that as soon as there's any single disruption, granted, this is a huge disruption, the global pandemic. But as soon as there is any disruption, uh, capitalism seems to crumble. Why doesn't capitalism insure itself against this kind of vulnerability from a disruption like even though it's massive a disruption like the pandemic?
2: Uh, I think when you're talking about, like, capitalism as a mode of production, you also have to look at, cat like, that mode of production is one that is based on a logic of sort of a constantly positing a sort of, like, limitless expansion, uh, which relies on sort of, like, perpetual movement, you know. There is uh, this constant, like, if you go into Marx and get into the discussions on, like, surplus value and, like, the creation of surplus labor you're constantly just sort of positing this like excess beyond what the society can even absorb or allow. So you're constantly sort of like running into, uh, or capitalism constantly runs into sort of like self erected limits to its own expansion. And that's something that's really like been in motion for like several years. Like with, with this particular crisis you have to look at the like uh, I mean like we tried to do a good job of going into the historical trajectory and like the tendencies that lead us to this point. Uh, But also like you could just, you don't even have to go too far back and you can just look at like the post 2008 uh, situation and realize that uh, a lot of this has been deferred for a long time. Uh, Like the 2008 crisis measures uh, have been an extremely weak recovery for the past 12 years. Uh, in 2019, especially with like the U S China trade war was a big story, but there were all sorts of trade disputes growing throughout the world and like declining trade flows and international investments. Like there was a, a a slowdown sort of organically starting to lurch to the horizon. And this just kind of became a thing that, uh, popped out, took everything by surprise and just really accelerated all of these latent instabilities that were being floated by credit and, uh, central bank support
1: <laughs> well, let's talk about that for a second uh nathaniel uh, how sustainable is that credit money market fiction what happens if we stop believing in that fiction is that the revolution that many have been waiting for is an end of believing in and being complicit and compliant in that credit money market fiction
3: uh, that's a great question. Uh, I have to say, I don't think anyone in the world knows the the depth um, that we can plunge with respect to fictitious capital, um, mm-hmm. and I, I think it's more than belief. Um, you know, for all that economists talk about, like uh, investor confidence and how like the stock market kind of operates through appearances and the projections of growth, more than it does uh, the reality or the real economy. Um, I do think that that has a material basis in basically imperialism. And I think that as long as finance capital as absurdly overinflated as it gets or as um, fictitious and kind of, you know, every investment um, or every asset bubble is like, you know, more and more doomed over time. For all that that uh, exists, as long as like the um the global north can continue to kind of pump surplus value out of the global south in a variety of ways then it could be sustained and like i i'm not sure if we've seen the end of that or if this is like totally um done for but i do think it has an ultimate uh, expiration date um because uh, i was just reading uh, an imf blog post this morning and they were saying that um the financial markets have diverged from the quote-unquote real economy more than like ever before. So this divergence is just something that's going to just continue and continue, and depending on how things go and how stable political arrangements remain, then it could be stabilized kind of long-term into the future or completely destabilized.
1: Well, so Richard, let me just follow up with you on that, has Mm -hmm. financialization been the most destructive force to capitalism and the reason that i'm asking you this question is what does that say about capitalism when it would pursue a program that is self-destructive
2: uh i mean this is like what i would piggyback with nathan on too is like uh the credit and like financial aspects of this take on uh the most prominent form of appearance as it's also sort of like that money fetish character of economics that we see, you know, it's, uh, this is like what we're tracking. This is sort of like the way in which crisis can become like most like, uh, officially announced, uh, you know, but I mean, we can already look at the condition right now, you know, stock markets going up, 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 but we know that the real situation is one of crisis. And it's, I think the thing with like financialization is like, you cannot divorce the, uh, swelling amounts of like finance capital the reliance on credit from the actual like material conditions of production that exist they are sort of inseparable because like you you notice this sometimes with uh some like certain critics of capitalism uh really like to emphasize financialization as some sort of like exceptional evil of capitalism that can sort of be tamed and then we can go back to the sort of like quote unquote investing in the real economy uh which is usually just like people's sort of like code words of saying that like why can't we have capitalism like it was in the 50s and ignoring all of the other problems there were with that or the very organic way in which uh financialization has like gotten so prominent and a lot of that is because uh, like economists like uh, like Robert Brenner and people like Aaron Beninav like discuss this like uh, industrial overcapacity, which in like Marxian terms would be discussed as a global overaccumulation of capital. And a good way to put this is that you have uh, like the tendency of capitalism to sort of like develop productive forces to constantly pump out surplus value. Uh, leads to an increasing amount of, like, technological means and, like, efficiency of production to extract the most surplus labor out of workers, which means that you are constantly, uh, you know, the whole uh, epiphenomenon of, like, people looking and, say, automation taking the jobs away and stuff. And it's like, well, it's this dynamic that starts to create, uh, like, chronic and structural underemployment because there's – like increasingly less ways to absorb all of the surplus labor capacity created in society profitably and like profitability is very key here so we have like massively developed overaccumulated productive forces that themselves uh have much more capacity than you know sort of like effective demand can be generated and So you kind of have to have these, like, very highly controlled and sort of, like, swelling amounts of, like, money capital and credit and stuff that are able to keep this continuity flowing despite all of these uh, apparent disproportions that exist. And and fundamentally, it's not just about, like, these disproportions. Like, you can't just, like, regulate that away. It is about the fundamental sort of, like, relations of production. And, like, in a way, like, credit and, like, finance themselves start to become... Uh, appearances of these relations of production.
1: Uh, Nathan, uh, you write that intertwined with surplus capital are the masses of surplus populations, an explosion in the landless proletariat in absolute numbers, colliding with depressed capital that can profitably exploit only a relatively waning subset, rendering the remaining masses superfluous and subject to the diverse. Tortures of increasing lumpenization The declining social wage fund That results from this is managed and calibrated With protracted disinvestment In public welfare infrastructure Now most spectacularly In the arena of public health Constituting an outright Abandonment of social reproduction What happens Nathan when social reproduction Is abandoned and to what degree Do you see the uprisings That are taking place across the United States Right now as a result of that social reproduction being abandoned?
3: I think to a large degree. I have to say the current uprisings, obviously, um, most immediately are about police violence and structural racism, which goes back, you know, back past the golden age of capitalism in America um, and, and obviously has its own kind of dynamics and history um, in excess of whatever's going on with the economy. However, the uh, the growth of the so-called surplus population, which is kind of a gross term that I like because it's gross, because that's how capital views people as just surplus kind of a problem to overcome and manage. Um, And just to piggyback off Richard, uh, the global overaccumulation of capital essentially means that more and more capital is bound up in forms that are separate and autonomous from from labor power, right? But labor power, nonetheless, is the sort of heart and engine of capital accumulation. It's how capital is able to expand um, and continue valorizing value. So, as this kind of structural floor keeps rising up, and more um, and and capital kind of moves away from this, you know, human form, the leftover human beings are kind of left with uh, having to fight over a declining share in that capital, in declining wages, um, less jobs, uh, more precarity with respect to their job. Um, And in addition to that, we point out later as well that not only are people who are previously proletarianized already part of the working class, performing wage labor, um, not only are those people's fortunes kind of declining in the sense of – Less in more precarity. Um, But people who were previously, you know, a generation or two ago, um, subsistence farmers basically, the global peasantry, um, which many hundreds of millions of people um, were in at near the end of the 20th century at this point, through debt traps, land grabs, um, uh, famine, drought, war. A lot of people have lost their land and and lost basically any alternative means of providing for themselves for socially reproducing themselves, um, which means that they're proletarians now. They're, they need to. They all they have is their labor power to sell, but in a labor market that just has historically low demand for labor power, as we already established, that's a huge problem. And you can see this in the growth of slums um, and just kind of like this people push to the margins of society, uh, increasing in a lot of arenas. Um, and re- related to this is, that, you know, the, the capitalists, um, they, they never want to pay out too many wages. And in fact, the only reason wage growth in the U.S. Um, tracked productivity growth um was because of a, a strong and well-organized labor movement that, for a variety of reasons, um, pretty much was beaten back in the 70s and ever since um, has been kept stagnant. And that has basically been a, a major source of uh, profitability is wage suppression, which includes outsourcing and overall reorganizing the global productive uh, infrastructure. Um, and. I should add, using border enforcement as a kind of means of maintaining separate labor pools, but allowing capital to move about wherever it needs to, to exploit uh, different work, uh, different groups of the working class uh, as it sees fit. Um, and we all know about the incredible um, kind of shadow banking network that allows major corporations to uh, avoid paying taxes. Uh, And that's a major part of it, too, because um, for as much as the state is essentially, you know, an instrument to maintain class society, um, it through class struggle, it has been forced to kind of requisition, you know, portions of capital, create public infrastructure um, and, you know, treat society as if there is a public, which we know is basically um, an illusion. But these these kinds of um, investments or diversions of capital towards non-profitable ends, but nonetheless are essential for social reproduction. Um, and by social reproduction, we mean literally the reproduction of humanity, um, feeding them every day, reproducing them intergenerationally, bringing people up, but also reproducing the kind of cultural ties and human beings are social animals and kind of um, organically produce a very complex, layered cultures that we're embedded in, and all of these things uh, require essentially like uh, a comfortable livelihood, uh, a reasonable um, certainty that you know you'll you'll be able to survive um, comfortably and whatnot into the future. And that is in direct conflict with profit profitability, and so as all of this stuff kind of gets degraded, um, you know, one thing that we dive deeply into in the essay that um, is kind of a funny example because in the United States we've never had a robust public um, sort of healthcare safety net. You know, our our medical system from the beginning was allowed to be as exploitative as possible um and at this point the uh healthcare industry everything from pharmaceuticals to big hospital companies to insurers constitutes i think like 17 or 18 percent of gdp um so it's a major industry here um and that has a long history to it but nonetheless this um privatization or this uh Always already private nature of the industry um, has kind of its own internal dynamics uh, with respect to social reproduction, where it's actually it's not exactly straightforward to extract profit from healthcare because you know patients aren't workers. There isn't labor power necessarily being expended here, or it's, it has a different profile than say manufacturing, and so that has pretty much driven prices way way up. Like super inflated. And, uh, we kind of track how this, um, externalization of social reproduction from capital, um, where the normal arrangement is, um, you know, human beings are kind of trapped within the capital circuit, but in exchange for that, they get wages and those wages are the basis of their own social reproduction here, healthcare. Um, there's, there's relatively little on the way of, providing for it and there's all sorts of schemes um that like i said uh allow for these rising prices um and what that does is kind of shuts most people out from accessing healthcare from being able to maintain their well-being and health in a way that like i said allows for a sort of comfortable livelihood where they're full social existence can flourish. And this is something I think like most people on the left are definitely very like anecdotally aware of, if not personally and acutely aware of, with their themselves or their family members. Um, But I think it's pretty clear that the reason the pandemic is hit so much worse here isn't just because Trump is an idiot. He definitely is. Um, And I don't want to minimize that, but the Healthcare system is just not designed to actually meet the needs of the populace at large.
1: Richard, uh, you, despite all of what uh, Nathan was just saying, you still see all of these people on the left, and you guys write about this, uh, who think that. There's a lot of optimism for the future. You write several prominent left liberal commentators have formed a chorus which always seems to be at hand during such a spectacle, theorizing the transformative potential of the pandemic, tending to speculate with unwarranted utopian optimism. So, Richard, what is the impact of that utopian optimism on the end result? How does utopian optimism affect the range of possibilities and the potential of this or any moment? Because I'm wondering... Personally, it, it, on top of all of what I just asked you, is utopian optimism an effective defense against, after the pandemic, stepping into a fascist world?
2: Uh, no. <laughs> 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 um, I mean, and that's the thing. It's like, rather than, like, uh, assessing what impact it would have, it's more, I think, important to really look at, like, where this could come from with a lot Uh And it's pretty understandable. Uh, I mean, a lot of these people and, like, commentators are, you know, you can look at their previous political positions they've held, the sort of, like, spaces they occupy in uh, discursive areas, and also the fact that, you know, like, they're published authors. They're (laughs) kind of, like, light bourgeoisie. um, And... Hey, this is something that's been coming out of this time too it's like we are, are uh, being thrust into like motion in a very turbulent way uh, a lot of political models that had been sort of like more carefully cultivated in times of uh, relatively less uh, widespread unrest are going to start seeming, pretty obsolete in the middle of like active struggle. Uh, good examples of these can be, you know, sort of like the, the peaceful protest demonstrations that you see that are really asserted over the other ones that have been happening and how that does nothing to really stop the police from brutalizing people. Uh, in the case of like some of these with like Zizek, it's just kind of like gesturing at some sort of universalism which is not, like not present. Uh, in the way that he describes it as, like, we come together in a human community. And, like, we use the example of the way he, like, falsely claims that Israeli-Palestinian, you know, hostilities somehow (laughs) stopped (laughs) because of the pandemic. Um, There's also, like, these sort of, like, progressive groups that are really looking for very technocratic ways to manage the instabilities of the present. Uh, And in a way, this is... Despite the progressive international label, uh, these are very much sort of like reactive positions that are sort of positing an ability to return to a more stable and uh, socially like, or a more stable version of capital accumulation that can once again account for social reproduction. But as Nathan was saying and we outline in here, it's like the trajectory of capital accumulation at this present and also like the dynamics of profitability and what that means for like wages and also the creation of like greater and greater surplus labor capacity that manifests as this sort of surplus population to capital, it is fundamentally not viable as such. Like uh, a good example here would be observing the sort of like hostilities and the eventual like tanking of the Bernie Sanders and like Corbyn uh, labor led like runs at office recently in the UK and the U S because that they're proposing reforms, which, you know, like most people can get behind with all this stuff. And they're proposing though, like a bourgeois democratic path to these, uh, in ways where it's just not going to be materialized in a way. Like you're not going to get that legislatively passed. You're not going to get that complied through, uh, like normal channels. Like you would actually, you require, some form of like actual class struggle and like transformation of existing conditions in order to make those viable and with these protests and stuff that you're seeing the blurred lines happening now between like protest riot and insurrection is that you're seeing like these sustainable relations necessarily have to be overcome by force (laughs)
1: So, uh, and Nathan, uh, you both write that the class struggle is conspicuously unmentioned when it comes to things like having a more democratic financial system. What happens to in any democratic vision for finance when it ignores class struggle, ignores the class struggle which made our current situation so precarious in the first place? Is class war in the U.S., Nathan, such a vulgarity, a profanity, that we will never have anything close to a truly democratic economy because we simply cannot face up to class struggle and class war.
3: Uh, well, it, it's funny. Um, I mean, I would I would start with uh, democracy and finance are antithetical. Um, you know, finance is the uh, autonomization of capital on top of, of course, a capital commodity producing society, um, and then that you know democracy is sort of this ideal we've inherited from the you know classical tradition it's a very ambiguous concept but if it means anything it certainly doesn't mean capitalist society of any kind um and so class struggle is not something that is like sort of discursively visible in American society it's not you know when it it is talked about even now um I mean I think a lot of Leftists are still kind of in a bubble. Um, It's definitely more prominently discussed, but even now it's discussed in extremely contrived ways. Um, But fortunately, class struggle doesn't depend on how we discuss it. Um, So, even if, um, so just to define, like I think what these people are proposing with respect to like democratizing finance is basically um, centralizing the banking system in such a way that credit is not just accumulating at the top. And so what that means is basically small businesses and that is going to preserve the class structure of society. um, Even if it kind of recreates this middle class that we all, you know, yearn for, so to speak. um, That is the, you know, the basis of this kind of reactionary nostalgia, even if we were to go, which by the way, that would be an extremely radical step that is not possible to implement in a purely technocratically, but would require like pretty significant pressure, i.e., struggle um, to to put into place. But even if we were to like achieve that, it would it would pretty much just put us back to like I don't know, maybe the 50s or 60s, um, which is not a, a stable uh, place to be, given global overaccumulation of capital and the kind of global deindustrialization that's occurred. So. It's all a fantasy all the way down, but even if it were to be put into place, um, it would just produce more class struggle. Again, however we discuss it, however um, these sort of left liberal commentators, you know, if they're able to recognize it or not, um, it's going to exist in all of their visions.
1: Richard, you mentioned the fetish structure of the capitalist social form in which everyone is classified individually as commodity sellers, merely distinguishable uh, quantitatively. Politics dominates class and capitalist society, displacing it in the appearance of an endlessly speciated but classless citizenry as they variously campaign, petition, assemble, protest, advertise, analyze, persuade, and sell to each other ad nauseum like carnival barkers. Richard, why does... Politics dominate class in capitalist society. Why do, for instance, culture wars dominate any discussion of class struggle, that has left us vulnerable to disruptions like the global pandemic?
2: Well, we have to look like, at the way in which, like, commodity determined production in society, uh, and the fact that, like, we although like we have these sort of like social forms and relations, but this this sort of like commodity determined production society. Ends up mediating uh, social relations of people between people, and instead of or starts mediating as uh, like people mediating these through, through these things through things, you know, objects, uh, relations, and a lot of that comes from like if we look at labor or like production relations in the labor process to capitalism. We have this dynamic where you know, like the people produce. Uh, like the the actual labor process in order to gain the wage for their own subsistence is also the very process where they're producing like surplus value or like realizing surplus value and like more service oriented work or such like are also reproducing the very uh, like thing like as alien property that dominates over them. It's this what I think what Marx would like call like this dialectical inversion of property on the manor. And uh, Nathan wants to add to this.
1: <laughs> Go ahead, Nathan.
3: Um, yeah, I mean, I just want to say, like, the citizen, which is sort of our unit of uh, democratic society, it is a product of of capitalist society. Um, and that, like, this fetishism is something that kind of is automatically produced, um, given the nature of commodity exchange, where... It's not that there's a class of people that's exploited and uh, a separate class of people that does the exploiting and um, extracts from the other class. It's that everyone just has a commodity, and some people, they have less. They might only have one, the commodity labor power. And this kind of forced equalization um, in which, formally speaking, there are essentially equal parties to a contract under the law, this is very... Uh, intimately related to uh, how politics are conducted and this figure of the citizen um, in which all citizens are equal in the political arena. Um, but nonetheless the the big open secret is, of course, there are elites and they have more power. Um, and the politicians um, exist to serve those elites and their power, right? That's a sort of vulgar way to to understand inequality. Um, but it obviously is is a is a way of getting at, Uh, this this class struggle that, again, is automatically generated uh, due to the nature of exploitation. And so this fetish structure is is a way of obfuscating the actual social relations that govern our lives and, um, you know, dominate the way that we relate to each other as people. Um, And it's something that's also explicitly cultivated beyond being just uh, the sort of automatic outcome. Um, And a lot of, like, the positive politics of liberalism is about um, kind of forcing through this uh, notion of equality over and against uh, any kind of material inequality. It's it's kind of designed, ideologically designed to uh, to ignore material inequality um, and focus instead on often symbolic inequality that's that's pretty much the extent to which liberalism at large will acknowledge that inequality exists is in a sort of like symbolic or ideological sense and a lot of like liberal anti-racism um thinks that race is merely a sign and that some people interpret those signs in um in ways that are that are corrosive and it's just a matter of correcting their interpretation Um, this is obviously absurd and um again Liberalism is something that's both kind of spontaneous, but definitely explicitly cultivated to as a weapon against uh, explicit class struggle.
1: So, Richard, uh, one of the things that you also both write about is how you see the CARES Act, how you see the stimulus bills. As kind of an imperialist project, we were speaking last week with Ariella Aisha Azale, who has a new book uh, called *Unlearning Imperialism*. That is really amazing. It's called. It's actually called. Rethinking History, I believe, on learning imperialism. And it is an amazing book about focusing on imperialism rather than capitalism. And a lot of people don't recognize that project of imperialism at play. So, Richard, how do you see imperialism being reproduced within things like the CARE Act?
2: Well, a lot of that would be just sort of like flooding. I mean, you're like flooding the economy with like dollar currencies and stabilizing, uh, you know, what... Could be called like "quote unquote" a U.S. national capital, but really, a lot of this money is just going to go straight into the already sort of like centralized and concentrated forms of like larger, maybe some would call like monopoly capitals that exist in like finance and also like large like retail or shipping kind of organizations. Uh, one thing we outline in this too is like uh, a lot of the CARES Act, like uh, some of the even some of the. Uh, payroll protection program small business loan stuff was just getting scooped up by private equity owned firms or like small hedge funds. Uh, recently actually, um, I think like Steve Mnuchin or like the Treasury Department, so whoever's in charge of that, I forget, uh, announced
1: You're that- right. You're correct. It's Yeah, Mnuchin.
2: yeah. yeah. They, they announced that they would not be uh, showing like who received the that stimulus funding. Um, <laughs> so that's just like, we're not going to tell you who got that uh and uh, the way this like upholds imperialism is i mean you could say like the imperialist relationship is already really inscribed in that sort of like global north global south dynamic that sort of like creates a corresponding geographies of like production and consumption where we have uh like deconcentrated uh production that has been largely exported across to like lower wage, like, lower cost of reproducing labor power populations in other parts of the world. This, like, uh, largely consists of, like, people in, like, what would be called a global south. Um, Themselves, because of these other dynamics of uh, automation, like, relative surplus value, are subject to chronic and structural underemployment as well. But, like, what that does to, like, more of the sort of, like, hyper uh, developed like imperial core economies, the U S being one is that this corresponding geography of consumption here, like, uh, manifest as, you know, these increasingly precarious jobs, uh, mostly in like service work, uh, which like services are taking a huge hit in this recession, which makes it kind of unique to others, which is interesting, but you see how prominent those are. It's that, Uh, They're trying to stabilize with this CARES Act stuff, like keeping those engines running of basically like consumer like processes going. Uh, You know, trying to keep people buying stuff. You extend credit. You get um, financial entities still able to keep like trading. They have liquidity to meet certain purchases. Uh, Yeah. I would say it's just acting on sort of like already inscribed global relationships that exist, but themselves also undergoing like severe tensions as, you know, especially like the U.S. economy undergoes a lot of uncertainty now, too. Uh, And fun little tidbit that's in the article that I really liked is that like Goldman Sachs is setting up short positions on the dollar, um, which means they are anticipating a depreciation in uh, dollar value. So... No. That should be interesting to see where it goes. Yeah, it should
1: be very <laughs> interesting to see where that goes. Uh, and again, I just want to make sure uh, uh, the uh, book by Ariella Azale is called Potential History on Learning Imperialism. Nathan, uh, you both write, Richard, and you write in your piece that the bourgeois fear history. Why do the bourgeois fear history, and what does that reveal about the bourgeoisie? <laughs> um,
3: the, that kind of has like multiple meanings uh depending on how what you want us what you mean by history um or i mean we wrote it we intended it to be that way um yes (laughs) but but kind of what we mean is is uh going back to uh what i was just saying last uh about this kind of um forced and formal equalization um you know the sort of like bourgeois world view which again emanates directly from their structural position within capital um is is this sort of equilibrium state that, uh, you know, change is always incidental, um, and it's fundamentally stable. Um, and in fact, not only stable, but like the final um, kind of apotheosis of history, and that, you know, history has ended, or, or we're in a post-historical phase. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, ask any person, any uh, academic, any liberal, any member of the bourgeoisie, and they're, of course, probably going to balk at the idea that they don't think we live in history, because this is more of an unconscious um, kind of uh, structured way of thinking than it is an explicit idea. Um, and what it means to us, though, is that, like, you know, what do we mean by history? Um, and obviously there's the, uh, the sort of like axiomatic um, part of historical materialism, which is that history is fundamentally driven by class struggle. Um, and so, this idea that great transformation of historical significance that will leave society uh, unrecognizable from what came before is is a thing of the past. You know, we did that. You know, the French did that, um, and the Americans did that. And then we wanted to spread democracy all over the world with our benevolent uh, imperialism. Um, that's sort of the de facto ideology of, of bourgeois society. Um, and, and they're in intense denial that that history is um, still very much occurring in any significant way. Um, and so, and in a way, we're in a sort of lapsed period or deferred period where great historical transformation isn't occurring. And mostly what we see is this kind of like, or what it feels like um, on a phenomenological level is just this continuous onslaught, you know, a boot stamping on your face forever. Um but that's not a, a stable position, um, and so really, you can rewrite that sentence to say, um, "If you're a nerd, to say uh, you know nothing, the bourgeois here nothing more than dialectics, um, which is you know an unstable position with antagonisms and conflicts um, that is going to necessarily lead to something new, um, and so I we you know we're kind of alleging that this." current crisis is you know which is extremely multifaceted is the most um global crisis that you know we've seen in a long time it's going to unfold in really unpredictable ways and really accelerate a lot of existing tensions towards potential breaking points and um i'm not necessarily uh super optimistic that that you know in any straightforward way means that we're going to get communism in the next 10 years, but it's definitely going to be the return of history in some fashion.
1: Well, Nathan, I just want to say, first of all, thank you for translating that into nerd for us because of our (laughs) audience, our demographic. That's totally right up our niche. Uh, We've been speaking with Richard Hunsinger and Nathan Eisenberg, who co-wrote the Cosmonaut article Mask Off, Crisis and Struggle in the Pandemic. Richard is a writer and member of of Atlanta's Housing Justice League. He writes at the blog Material Community Industrial Polity, as does Nathan. You can find that blog at Oh, it's a really long URL. Just go to our website. We have a direct link to it there. Nathan is, a, Nathan is a writer based in the East Bay. He also, like I said, writes at the same blog. You can follow Richard on Twitter at Dickophrenic, which is an awesome Twitter handle. And Nathan also has a great uh, Twitter handle, Post Cyborg. So we've got those great as well. One last question for each of you. And Richard knows this, uh, if he remembers, back in August when he was on our show in the past. And you can look up Richard's name, Hunsinger, at our website and find the interview that we did with him back in August of 2019. Our final question for all of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate the response. Richard, can we stop believing in the fiction of money? Is that even possible? And if it is possible, how can we do that?
2: Well, I, I want to echo something that Nathan brought up earlier, too, where it's just like it's uh, it's less so like a, a matter of just sort of like initial belief where it's like, you know, it's one thing where we can all decide and just uh, you hear this all the time express people just be like, geez, money is fake. But then it's like money is fake. But then you go and try to survive and you realize that your sort of like own reproduction is very much structured in a social way, like a very impersonal social domination around you. So it's, uh, if there's any way we have out of it, I think, um, it's not the entire answer, but you can really look at a lot of the riots and a lot of the looting that has been happening as well as, you know, the like wave of sort of like strikes occurring sort of like under the surface of society that have been happening throughout this pandemic. It's, uh, We must expropriate the expropriators, you know, like you want to get rid of the money and everything. You have to find a way to overcome this form of mediation that just kind of perpetuates this ongoing domination.
1: (laughs) And Nathan, for you, are we on the verge of a class war, the class war that many have been waiting for for a very long time?
3: Um. I mean, we've been living it. I think class war is, is a bit of a misnomer because, well, it is and isn't. I mean, we think of war as, a, you know, two big militaries um, fighting, you know, like a strategic battle or whatever. But war nowadays is just this kind of like constant, low-level, kind of almost background thing. And, and that's how the class war is as well. Um, and so, uh, yes and no. I mean, it it's... We are certainly the the, um, the bourgeoisie certainly fight the class war every day. Um, more and more of the working class are, I think, engaging in a variety of struggles, whether it's um, labor and tenant unions um, or less obvious ways as well. Um, you know, if you look to, like, the, the Maoists in the Philippines or the Naxalites in India, the, definitely class war being fought um, in places like that. Um, And, yeah, I mean, I do see more of it in the future, and I see more overt forms in the future. Um, I think a lot of people have been fighting a kind of class war out in the streets these last few weeks. And I don't really see the world going any direction other than all of these things heating up more and more.
1: Yeah, Nathan. Just uh, you were saying that this is uh, the class war has been the bourgeoisie have been launching this class war for a very long time. I think it was back in nineteen ninety six or ninety seven, either our first or second year of doing this show, and we had somebody on and they said, you know, there is a there isn't there is no class war going on right now. There's just a class assault by the rich on the poor. Right, and that's exactly. Mm-hmm. And that was what nineteen ninety six, and here we are, twenty five years later, and look at all the progress we've made. Uh, (laughs) Nathan and Richard thank you so much for being on our show Richard thanks for returning to our show the best of luck to both of you your writing is exceptional thanks so much
3: yeah, for thank having you. Thank
1: yeah. you. Bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996. This is Hell. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth Radio Show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from Mel is What are you bringing to the Autonomous Zone? What are you bringing to the Autonomous Zone? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell medical face mask. You can see it right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can find all of the ways in which you can support completely listener-supported This Is how You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. Alex, do you have more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from Al or do you want to just get the hell out of here? Up to you.
0: Uh, sorry, I missed my button. Oh, yeah, we can do some more. Uh, Martin F. says strippers, hookers, and cocaine. All if right. anything goes on in the autonomous
1: zone, might as well live it up. You know, strippers, hookers, and blow, we should just make that as, you can't have that as the answer to the question from (laughs) now. Justin M says, medicine,
0: in in quotation marks. Mm -hmm. So maybe he's talking about the same thing. I see. Gorilla G says, Robert's rules of order and a gavel. (laughs) Oh, and a wig. Austin RM says, Roombas. Scott W's. uh, And actually, that's uh, all we have for now.
1: Oh, that's it? Okay. You kind of stopped yourself, I thought, mid-answer I there. Thought,
0: yeah, because I, clo- I have to close everything when we talk to people on Skype so that uh, we don't lag. So I have to hardly open everything as soon as we hang oh, up Oh, so you people. weren't
1: self-censoring something that was horrible. Uh, no. A- oh, okay, cool. So Alex will have more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell tomorrow. Don't forget you have to have your answer to this week's question from hell by the end of the show tomorrow. Thursday, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. So get your answers in now. During tomorrow's Moment of Truth, Jeff explores little nightmares. And Alex, who is the guest on tomorrow's show beginning streaming live at 10 a.m. Chicago at thisishell.com? Oh, yeah, I just booked it actually in the middle of the interview. Uh,
0: Max Rameau and Nett Freeman will talk about their Black Agenda Report piece, community control versus defunding the police, a critical analysis.
1: I'm really looking forward to that because I'm just kind of tired of hearing these phrases and then people not determining which is better, which is worse. I've heard a lot of really bad things about community policing. I've heard shortcomings in defunding the police. So I'm really looking forward to having a good conversation about that. Tune in to tomorrow's show streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host. Chuck Merce. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I want to thank Alex for producing. Thanks to Richard and Nathan for being our guests, Richard Hunsinger and Nathan Eisenberg, co-authors of the Cosmonaut article, Mask Off, Crisis and Struggle in the Pandemic. The planet's on fire. So yes, this is hell.
2: Thank you for listening to This is Hell. For more Interview
0: Hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.